The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia, 11 o'clock, oh my goodness. Such a diverse group of people that come to the space. I love it. And so much more diverse than looking in the mirror, um, which I'm really appreciating too. The one thing I do admit though now is that when I practice in the mirror, I normally just look straight. Um, so this, this movement makes me a little bit dizzy um, and will probably make you a bit dizzy if I try to overcompensate for that. So I, I apologize in advance for the eye contact that I'm not giving the people on these sides of the rooms that you deserve, but I'm gonna try as much as I remember. My name is Sarah Seabrook. And as you can probably already tell, I am not a native Houstonian. I hail from the sunny land of South Africa. And as a result, I do say tomato instead of tomato. I do say water instead of water. <laughs> and one of my more specific prayer requests for this morning is that you will understand what I am saying despite my accent. In 2007, I married David. Isn't he handsome? He's handsome, isn't he? And because of his job, we've had the incre incredible privilege of living in five different countries over the past 12 years, which is how we landed up in Houston. This is what I call our trio of delight. Zoe Kieran and Abigail India are our seven-year-old twins, and Rebecca Houston is our four-year-old baby. We first came to Houston in 2009 and thankfully stumbled across Ecclesia on Taft Street and made it our church home and community pretty early on in our stay here. We landed up staying here for six years and have just moved back again after a three-year stay in London where I had the wonderful opportunity of working for a church there called Holy Trinity Clapham. It's in the south of London, incredible heart for the work of what God's doing in the people of the UK. So if you happen to visit London over a weekend or relocate to London, please do go to Holy Trinity Clapham. It's just a great space. One of the things that I love about Chris and this staff team here is their understanding of people's differences and their strengths and struggles. And as such, I really appreciate the opportunity this morning to stand here and speak to you about something that I am certainly no expert on, but have been struggling through in my own life for the past four years. And I believe it's something that increasingly more and more people are struggling with too. So that's a bit of a lightning summary of who I am and how I landed up standing before you this morning. If you've been attending Ecclesia for more than a few months, you would have heard about one of the fabulous opportunities Chris offers to join him as he leads a group of fellow Ecclesians on a journey through Israel. Back in Easter of 2014, Dave and I and our twin 18 months uh, uh, daughters at the time joined our extended family on a similar tour of the Holy Land that was led by the pastor of our church in South Africa. It was my mum's 60th birthday and as such about 20 members of our family and her closest friends came along. Early on in our tour, while we were staying in a hotel in the heart of old Jerusalem, a small group of us had arranged to go for coffee after dinner one evening. And one of our friends, Lydia, 
came up to my room and said that she decided not to join us for coffee after all, as her allergies were playing up a bit, and she felt she needed to just take a couple of antihistamines and get a good night's rest. Lydia had an allergy to sesame seeds, and she thought that maybe there'd been a bit of tahini sauce on the fish that we'd eaten at dinner that night, and she might have ingested that. Within the space of about 30 minutes, our idyllic holiday turned into the most traumatic event of my life. Lydia was collapsed on the floor, and my sister, who's a medical doctor, and David were doing CPR on her. We'd managed to get our hands on two EpiPens and a handful of steroid tablets that were crushed and put under her tongue. And despite the fact that we had three medical doctors on, on the team with us and all of those life-saving drugs, Lydia never woke up again. And her family flew into Jerusalem three days later to be there as her life support system was turned off. We were absolutely shattered. Lydia was 30 years old. She was an incredibly gifted and brilliant teacher whose whole being radiated Christ. This holiday was meant to be a celebration of life and friendship and family and the goodness of God and what he had done and what he was doing amongst us. And instead, we were staring in shock and disbelief and anger and a sense of betrayal in the face of an untimely, unjust, cruel, and traumatic death. We finished the tour in what felt like just a haze of grief and disbelief and made our way back to our respective homes and lives and somehow had to pick up where we left off with this gaping wound and figure out how to answer the well-meaning but tumultuous questions all of our colleagues and friends asked us when we got back home. So how was Israel? I had 18-month-old twins to focus my energy and attention on, as well as being a chaplain intern at St. Luke's, and soon found out that I was pregnant with our youngest, Rebecca. I steamed ahead with life as best as I could, and that worked well for, for about 18 months. Then we had some friends over for a visit and we were somehow landed up talking about Lydia's unbelievable tragedy over barbecued kebabs and cactus beer, when all of a sudden I became absolutely certain that I was having an allergic reaction to the beer. I sent everyone off in different directions hunting for antihistamines, and eventually I insisted that Dave drive me to the ER at Memorial Hermann so I could get an EpiPen and be put onto a steroid drip. On the way to the hospital, the whole right side of my body went completely numb, and I clearly remember praying, God, if I die tonight, please bring a mother for my children. When we got to the hospital, I couldn't understand why the emergency team was so relaxed, and no one was rushing at me with adrenaline. Didn't they understand the limited time I had before I died? They hooked me up to a monitor, and they showed me that all my levels were normal. I had a bit of an elevated heart rate, they said, but they said that was just because it seemed like I was having a panic attack. What? A panic attack? Me? I am the most level-headed person I've ever met. 
I remember a good friend once confiding in me that she suffered from panic attacks and explaining what they felt like and how in the moment she was 100% convinced that she was going to die. And although I hopefully listened with the professionalism of a trained counselor, in my mind I was thinking, gracious, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. How can you believe you're going to die when there is absolutely nothing physiologically wrong with you? And yet here I was, lying in the bed in the ER at Memorial Hermann, wondering why this fancy monitor wasn't recording the numbers accurately and showing all of these trained professionals that I was in actual fact on death's door. And here, friends, begins my journey with panic attacks, with a low-grade level of anxiety that, if I'm not careful, can spiral very quickly and very scarily into a full-blown panic attack. Today, we'll be looking together at the words of Paul, found in the fourth chapter of Philippians, starting at verse 4. Most of all, friends, always rejoice in the Lord. I never tire of saying it, rejoice. Keep your gentle nature so that all people will know what it looks like to walk in his footsteps. The Lord is ever present with us. Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray. Pray about everything. He longs to hear your requests. So talk to God about your needs and be thankful for what has come. And know that the peace of God, a peace that is beyond any and all of our human understanding, will stand watch over your hearts and minds in Jesus the Anointed One. Finally, brothers and sisters, fill your minds with beauty and truth. Meditate on what is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is virtuous and praiseworthy. I grew up very happy to read a passage such as this, look for the command in it, and set off going about doing what it instructed. I was a pretty obedient child, and as such, I loved commands, because they were an easy opportunity for me to achieve, to impress, to tick a box, to stand out. I especially loved passages such as this, where the issue at hand was something completely foreign to me. I wasn't a warrior. I was pretty gentle and happy and thankful. To me, this command fell into the I've got this down category, along with do not murder. <laughs> it's easy stuff, until it was me. And then the overarching voice of this passage not only made me feel guilty, but it also trivialized what I was feeling. It started to sound a little bit like this. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but 
truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> it is. Then stop it! Now, you might be sitting there thinking, wow, Sarah's messed up. Believing she's going to die when she doesn't even have an allergy. That's not cool for her or her poor husband. But I'm going to check out now because I don't ever get anxious. And I'm going to just take the next 20 minutes and have a nap to give me some more energy for the rest of Sunday. And what I'll say to you is that's fine. But if you do take away one thing before you go to sleep, can I ask that you remember that stop it is not a helpful way to respond to the rest of us who do struggle with some level of anxiety. And I would actually like to point out that research has shown that anxiety permeates our culture and lives far more pervasively than most of us are even aware. Max Licado describes anxiety as a free-floating sense of dread of things that might happen sometime in the future. It's vague, it's distant, it's not really logical, but it's the sense that something bad always happens and it's about my turn. It comes from the root word meaning to choke, to squeeze, to take your breath away. He describes anxiety as being a close cousin to fear but not its twin. Fear sees a threat, anxiety imagines a threat. Fear results in fight or flight when it sees a snake. Anxiety results in the decision to never walk barefoot anywhere, anytime in the world because somewhere out there is a snake. It's a general angst about life and it steals our breath and health. It weighs a person down. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders are reaching an epidemic proportion. 
In a given year, 17% of Americans will feel the effects of a panic attack. It's been reported that approximately 100 million American adults at some time in their lives will suffer from anxiety-related issues. That's a third of the adult population. If you just turn and look down your row, that's probably about seven people across your row. According to one research program, anxiety-related issues are now the number one mental health issue amongst women and the second biggest problem among men, second only to alcohol and drug abuse. America is considered the most anxious nation in the world. Stress-related ailments cost the nation $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity, while the use of sedative drugs like Xanax and Valium keeps high rocket, skyrocketing. That's actually, if you do the math, the equivalent of $1,000 per American adult per year spent on anxiety-related costs. Researchers also say that if we look at our emotional state, one would think we're living in a war zone, whereas citizens of developing countries experience anxiety to the level one-fifth of Americans. And according to the same research, when those citizens of the less developed countries immigrate to the US, they tend to get just as anxious as Americans. According to a study done by Robert Leahy, the average high school student has the same anxiety levels as the average psychi psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. There are those of us, of us that have named anxiety and panic disorder, but there are also many of us that are weighed down by something Australian pastor Mark Sayers refers to as ambient anxiety. It's an anxiety that's caused by what he terms the digital nervous system that we are permanently plugged into. One of the joys of the World Wide Web is the ability to have access to pretty much everything within a few clicks on our smart device. The scope of knowledge we can tap into is unprecedented. However, how much angst has been caused by the self-diagnosis of a medical condition based on what we research on the internet? It reminds me of humanity's first self-help attempt this desire to know everything, to have nothing off limits. It goes all the way back to the first man and woman. Author Rachel Held Evans put it like this. When life was not enough, when the man and woman wanted more, they sought wisdom in the garden's only forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They thought its fruits would make them like God. But in their grasping and rebellion, in their independence and greed, they instead learned fear, anger, judgment, blame, envy, and shame. These emotions sound very familiar when I look at the effects of eating the fruits of our modern day tree of knowledge or the digital nervous <laughs> system. Recently, I was talking to my mother she would say she's closer to 60 years old, I would say she's closer to 70 years old, but either way, I was really impressed by the amount of WhatsApp chat groups she's part of. 
Her intention is to be able to keep in touch and to be abreast of any news and ways she can help and pray for people in those groups. However, my siblings and I have noticed that it is very easy for her to become weighed down by the struggles of someone mentioned in the group. Someone possibly even 10 times removed from an enemy in her sphere of influence. And instead, she lands up carrying the weight of far more burdens than I believe she was ever intended to have to shoulder. For some, this ambient anxiety is caused by the continual stream of breaking, normally bad, news headlines that points out how much of what we put our hope in is being exposed as lies and is letting us down. For others, it's this virtual identity that we've created for ourselves on social media that has come to value itself by the number of likes or friends requests or followers we have on Twitter or Instagram. It's looking at others' highlight reels on their Facebook page and it easily trips us into becoming uh, covetous and ungrateful for the things that we have been given. We start to feel inferior. We look at the number of likes we've got recently and compare them to the number of likes that our friends have and all of a sudden our self-worth goes down and we question why nobody likes us. It's an economy of attention, a kind of social currency that we're forever tallying and coveting. We look at others' lives and have FOMO, fear of missing out, and that causes another level of anxiety, as does the dread the absolute dread of someone catching an embarrassing video of us tripping up some stairs or posting an embarrassing photo of us with food all over our face and it gets uploaded for all and sundry to see and comment on before we can take a minute to laugh at ourselves or wipe the food off our face. And for, the, for others, it might be anxiety that's created out of a striving to create the safe life the risk-free future that misses out on opportunities, potential risks, adventures, and courageous challenges that could be world-changing. We all experience paralyzing fear and anxiety, maybe in varying degrees, and it's slowly choking us. But what do we do with it? I'm sure we can all agree that the wisdom of Bob Newhart in Just Stop It isn't quite going to cut it. I was recently challenged to my core about this when I heard this invitation from Mark Sayers of the This Cultural Moment podcast. He talks about us as the church being plugged into this digital nervous system <coughs> as a non-anxious presence rooted in Christ. Us as the church being plugged into the digital nervous system as a non-anxious presence rooted in Christ. Says is referring to the family therapist by the name of Edwin Friedman who coined the term non-anxious presence. When Friedman would do family therapy, he would look for a member in the family, possibly even only a child, who could be coached to be a non-anxious presence, and thus an agent for change and healing 
and bringing about peace in that family. The opening poem of the line, uh, the, the opening line of the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling, so beautifully describes what it looks like to be that non-anxious presence. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. I believe this is what Paul was encouraging us to do in verse four and five of our passage today. A follower of Christ who is able to rejoice is someone who remembers who is king and whose kingdom we're living in. This is the person who looks all around and still recognizing the threats, instead of caving into the anxiety, leans into a God who has proved faithful and steadfast. This is the person who can remain level-headed, gentle, contagiously calm, and in spite of the fears, be that non-anxious presence. Paul then goes on in verse six to eight to issue us with two invitations. Firstly, to pray with thanksgiving. Now to say to someone who's struggling with anxiety, you know, you just need to pray. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to have to say to somebody and, and, and really what they wanna know is, well, what exactly is that going to do? So for me personally, I can only speak from that praying is what reminds me that I'm not alone in that moment. Instead, I'm connected to God and I'm reminded of His sovereignty and that brings an instant level of comfort to me. Secondly, praying normalizes the issue. I found that one of the most useful tools in calming myself down in this tide of panic is to ground myself. By grounding myself, I mean really physically. I take my shoes off. I press my feet one toe at a time into the floor. And I also put a finger on my throat and feel for my pulse. And it's always been there every time I've tried. <laughs> and I'm just reminded of the steady life that's flowing through me. And then I start to talk to myself or whoever's unfortunate enough to be around me at that time, about incredibly mundane things, such as what I need to buy at the grocery store. Or I point out and name things around me that grab my attention. That beautiful baby over there with a beautiful bow in her hair, that lovely blue dress. I just slowly name things that ground me and they reduce the chaotic disco ball of spinning emotion and that's also what specific prayer does. Sometimes even kneeling, getting down to the dirt, getting down to the ground. It names the obvious, it talks through the issue, and it reduces that proverbial mountain back into a molehill. I think it's fair to say that Thanksgiving isn't a prevalent voice of our culture. An attitude of gratitude, contentment, thankfulness, they aren't words that someone new to our culture would use to describe us. But in Philippians 4, we see the crucial role that thanksgiving plays in how we can be rooted in peace. I was recently speaking with a friend who told me how he struggles with low-level feelings of anxiety. And one of the most effective things that he has done to combat this is to start each day before God writing down 
all the things that he is thankful for. Gratitude is an incredible antidote to the feelings of discontentment that the highlight reels of others' lives continually raise. Paul's second invitation is to fill our minds with beauty and truth, to meditate on whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, good, virtuous, and praiseworthy. After my most recent panic attack, just a few weeks ago, we were on a family holiday by the beach with my family. You'd think the most relaxed environment in the world to be. My brother pointed out to me that the basis of my anxiety is an untrue belief that I am anchored to. It's a false narrative about myself. I don't have deathly allergies. I've even been tested for them to give me the scientific proof of it. But somehow I've grabbed onto a false narrative and claimed it as my own and it pulls me under every time. If I ground myself in what I know to be the truth, I am much more likely to defeat the rising panic. This applies to those of us who experience anxiety, but my challenge is also to all of us who are living virtual lives in the digital nervous system. The things we like, or repost, or retweet, or headline on our pages, are they things that are true? Are they right? Are they pure? Are they lovely? Are they good? Are they virtuous? Are they praiseworthy? Or do we too add to the ambient anxiety and anxious buzz as we feed that online appetite for mayhem and panic and frenzy? So what are the narratives of truth we should rather be anchoring ourselves to? These are the seeds of truth that we find when we spend time in God's word, where he reminds us that we are so many things. A friend of mine by the name of Thea Muir, she's an author and an artist, and she's had her own struggles with, with anxiety that eventually led to an all-consuming eating disorder. And she had had enough of this, and she decided to spend some time searching God's word for truths about who he sees us as his children to be took her a good year to do that, and she landed up finding 113 truths, enough to fill a whole book that she's called I Am So Many Things. Reading over these truths regularly is a continual reminder of the narratives of truth that we can courageously stand up under and replace the lies that our culture taunts us to believe about ourselves. And know that the peace of God a peace that is beyond any and all of our human understanding will stand watch over your hearts and minds in Jesus, the anointed one. One of the things that brings great joy and liveliness to Dave and I is the opportunity to do high altitude trekking. We've enjoyed the opportunity to explore some incredible mountain ranges together and get some impressive peaks under our boots. However, Every time we climb a mountain together, there has, is now what has become a predictable moment of crisis. We try really hard 
to ensure that the route we are taking and the equipment that we are using is the safest for our adventure. But inevitably, there is always a section of our climb that is precarious. A section, whether it's because of a steep ice field or a scree slope or an exposed cliff, that I begin to feel that I am on unsure footing. And the fear rises quickly. I freeze up and I begin ranting at Dave that this is the most irresponsible thing we have ever done. This has happened in the past. Didn't he remember that it was so very awful? But still, he's dragged me back to this very same predicament again. It'll just take one small mistake and we could go crashing to our death, taking all these other people with us, leave our children as orphans. And so the rant continues. And Dave, being the most incredibly patient and forgiving and gracious person I've ever met, just nods his head, never once saying, stop it, stop it, and urges me on one shaky foot at a time. And we get to the end of the area of risk. And then I turn back and say, that was great. <laughs> These adventures on unstable footing freak me out. But Dave knows that we have crampons on our feet and an ice axe in our backpack that can dig us into the ice. He's made sure I'm clipped into the rope, so if I do slip, it will catch me. I panic, I rant, I fumble, and I sometimes fall. But I am anchored, and as such, I can progress one step at a time. Stable footing. Ephesians 6 reminds us of the armor of God. And verse 15 specifically talks about the shoes of peace that we are to daily anchor our feet in. The peace and certainty of our identity in Christ gives us firm gripping in a world that is often building its empire on unstable ground. It gives us stability and helps us keep our footing and our sanity when everything around us is swirling. The peace of a personal knowledge of Christ and our identity in him becomes an anchor that tethers us and is often a peace that is beyond human understanding. And as we ground down into this peace, we can become that non-anxious presence planted in whatever sphere of influence God has put us, whether it's at work, whether it's at a school, at a home, in a friendship circle, on the bus, in online chat rooms, on Twitter feeds. We can become the people that, because of our rootedness in Christ, bring calm in chaos and frenzy. Priscilla Shira, in her study, The Armor of God, says the following, Shalom. The Hebrew word for peace does not refer to the absence of chaos, but rather to an overall deeply entrenched sense of harmony, health, and wholeness in the midst of chaos. In fact, true peace is best detected and measured against the backdrop of commotion and confusion. When instability abounds, yet you remain steadfast. When disappointment and confusion are near, yet you're still capable of walking with spirit-infused confidence, stability, and steadfastness, a peace beyond comprehension. When I get caught up in untrue narratives that lead to my panic attacks, 
or the ambient anxiety of the digital nervous system, my propensity is to withdraw from the situation, to go off all forms of social media, to stop reading the news, to isolate myself so as not to get caught up in the downward spiral of anxiety, and sometimes to even say, stop it, to myself. However, the challenge to myself and all of us here this morning is to rather anchor down in the truths of who we are in him and then to be that non-anxious presence rooted in Christ and knowledge of my identity in him. For those of you here who are very practical and need some homework to take away this morning, I want to suggest three simple challenges. Firstly, get your hands on truth, the truth of who you are in God. Whether it's an in-depth Bible study or something like Thea's I Am So Many Books, something that is truth that you can grab your hands on. Secondly, read and engage with it. I can't tell you the amount of books I've bought and never actually read. If you're gonna buy the book or join the Bible study, engage with it, read it. Just a truth a day. For example, I am a masterpiece. I am bearing good fruit. This is one of them. I am God's very good idea. And couple this with a time of thankfulness for whatever comes to mind and very specific, simple prayer about whatever it is that's consuming your thoughts. And then ask God and those who are honest enough with you to highlight some things that might be unstable in you some untrue narratives that you are believing and replace it with these truths so that you can be used by him to be a non-anxious presence. And finally, for those of you here who are now being nudged awake by the person sitting next to you because you are not the anxious type, I ask that you would have grace and patience and offer support for the increasing number of those around you who do struggle with anxiety to some degree or another and urge them along as they try to be non-anxious presence in this world. We all forget our identity in Christ. We forget the stability and the rootedness that he has given us in his death and his resurrection. And because we forget, he has commanded us to remember. And this is why we gather now for communion. One of the beauties of this church is that every time there's a gathering, we come back to the table. We know how quickly we forget and we give ourselves the opportunity to run back to grace, to reground ourselves, to tether ourselves back to the immovable anchor that doesn't get caught up in the hype and tossed and turned by the unrest around us. He is our non-anxious presence. Can I join you now at the table as we gather with thanksgiving to remember the voice of truth and find our peace in him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.